Welcome back, everyone, for yet another week. We will begin today, Perik Yod. Our learning is dedicated to Lui Nishmasuf Kabe Yaakov Alevi, Rafua Shlema for Tehillah Batia Bechayatova, Bracha Bigalbar Rachogito, Yudhya Chaiman of Ibarif Kachaya, Moshe Melech Alevi Ben Basha, Shalom Ben Chaya Sarah, and Shadokhim for all those in need. Okay, we left off last week with the people of Givon deciding to make a treaty with the Jewish people. Okay, a little bit of a trick. They pretend to be from a far off land and they come out to the Jewish people. They come to Yoshua and they say, we want to make peace. We come from a long, far distance from here. We heard all about the amazing things that God has done. We want to be a part of this holy alliance with Klal Yisrael. Amazing, except that they're not. They're, they're the very next city that's supposed to be attacked. Okay, but in the end, Yoshua says, I agreed, my word is my word. Your punishment is that you'll be the Chotvei Eitzim, the Shavei Mayim. Beautiful, you're going to sustain us. You're going to provide us with wood, wood which, with which we can build. You're going to provide us with water so that we're able to be sustained. It's not a bad thing for the Jewish people, and especially in light of our greater discussion, that peace was actually something that was not discouraged. It just was something that was not embraced. What happens? How do the other kings react to this peace treaty? Which is question number one. But an equally important question is, is their reaction good for the Jews or is it bad for the Jews? And that's, I think, what we have to understand as we start the first psukim of our parrot. <speaking in Hebrew> When it was that Adonit Sedek, who was going to be the leader of this coalition, when he hears what was done to Yericho and to its king, and what was done to I and to its king, important points in light of how we're going to finish today's shir. And worse, they heard that Givon had made peace. They heard that Givon had decided in their mind to make an unholy alliance with the Jewish people. They were afraid because Givon was not a little city. It was not I. It was much bigger than I. And not only that, the people there were much stronger. They lost one of their most powerful players. He sent a message to four other kings, the king of Yarmut, the king of Hebron, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. It even mentions um, their names. So he says, I want you to come and we'll fight. Givon has made peace with, it, with the Jews and with Yoshua. Interesting. His fear is a fear of the Jewish people. And yet rather than taking this massive battle force and saying, let's go, let's attack against the Jews, he says, let's attack against Givon. Perhaps he realizes that although Givon is a strong city, he is nonetheless more concerned with uh, 
getting rid of Gibbon because it's an easier win than attacking the Jewish people. Okay, maybe he's questioning, will the Jewish people actually stand up for Gibbon? It's a good question. If they don't, then it's a win. We get back the city of Gibbon and we're once again protected and buffered by the city of Gibbon. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, why is he so upset about what happened with uh, this peace treaty? So the Bible gives several answers. The first one is that he felt that it was disloyal to his fellow Canaanim. There is an alliance of kings. There are a confederate of states. And they are all supposed to be on the same side. They're on the same page. And he can't believe that one of them broke ranks. Impassable. That's number one. Abar Benel also says he actually was afraid that his people would abandon him and would be willing to also make peace with the Jewish people. That was something that he was terribly afraid of. And the third possibility is that he actually thought that the Jewish fighting machine might come to a stop. Why? Because there's only so far you can keep going. What does Yeshua do? He wins, he goes back to Gilgal. He wins, he goes back to Gilgal. Israel's not that big. Okay, so you can keep going back to Gilgal, but you're going to reach a certain point in time where you're going to say, I can't just keep going back to Gilgal. I'm going to have to build cities. Says the Empire Benel, what does Givon do? Givon provides him with a city. It provides him with a base, a jump off point that is actually much closer. And so in having Givo, in allying with Givo, what he actually is afraid of is that the Jewish people are more cemented and there's less likely to be a pause in battle for them to map up everything else. Now, I, I just want you to see um, a couple things first. Yerushalayim is a city that we're all familiar with. I don't have to show people what Yerushalayim looked like to appreciate the greatness of Yerushalayim. I think we'd all, we all have a good sense of Hebron as well. And Yerushalayim, we have to assume that he was probably based on, I don't need to say that was my king, based on what is now the city of David, Yerushalayim. Okay, it's, it's a big ancient town. Might not be big by, by standards of today's cities, but it was a big city back then. And Hebron also, if you've ever been to Hebron, you could see Tel Hebron, it's a big area also. But I want to show you the other, two of the other cities that we might be less familiar with. This is Tel Yarmut. It's an aerial picture of what is left nowadays. You can actually visit it um, on tour one. We actually did go there. It was very, very cool. Self, self-guided. self um, You have to figure it out a little bit by yourselves and by looking at some pictures. But this is actually what it looks like. This is a massive palace slash fortress. You can still visit today. And the city probably was a little bit bigger. They believe that this city dates back to the times of Yehoshua, actually a little bit before Yehoshua. So that's number one, that's city number one. It is right outside of um, right outside of Beit Shemesh, uh, Ramat Beit Shemesh, rather. In fact, there is a uh, there was a there was a movement hoping that when they named Ramat, when they built Ramat Beit Shemesh, instead of naming it Ramat Beit Shemesh, which would be an extension of Beit Shemesh to name it after biblical Yarmut. Uh, also interesting uh, point, especially since uh, Purim is um, around around us. If you're watching before Purim, right after Purim, during Purim, uh, Yarmut was a walled city, Bimot Yoshua Benun. It makes it an interesting question 
halachically what the status of Ramat Beit Shemesh is. And you can make the argument that Ramat Beit Shemesh should have to celebrate on the 15th. I don't think it's really an accepted opinion, but someone actually wrote a sefer called Torah Yarmut, which addresses all the halachic ramifications of Yarmut being a walled city in the times of Yoshua Bindor. This is a drawing of what the city of Lachish looks like. Also, it's a pretty big city. Five walled cities. Five walled cities. The question is, is this good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? This alliance of these five southern kings coming to attack the Jewish people, is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? And for that, I want to share with you a beautiful, beautiful idea by, um, I believe, Ravigal Ariel. And this is what he says. He says the following. We have to understand that there is a divine strategy that's going on. The fact that this group got together and decided that they were going to ally themselves together, it's actually a good thing. After the win over I, all these nations got together. They saw what were the Jews doing. The Jews are picking off one city after another after another. So they had already made their coalition. And then they came to fight. That's what happens. They come to fight. They come out to fight. That's the godless. That's the amazing thing. Could you imagine having to lay siege to Yushalayim? And then Hebron. And then Yarmut. And then Lachish and then Eglon. It would take so much time. And yet what we're going to see in our Perek is that everything that they did, which took so much time, in the end, the Jewish people are going to do it in so, so little time. Boom. That's it. The whole thing just like that. So Pasuk, hey. So all five of them allied together. And they come to Givon. Now, in the previous map, we saw how they're all coming from their cities. But all of them come to Yushalayim. Adonit Tzedek is going to be the commander-in-chief of this battle of five kings. And they come up right up the north, Yushalayim, to Givon. That's their strategy. So they send a message to Yoshua saying, Don't leave us. We're allies. We're friends. Come and save us. Because all the Malachi that lived in the mountains, in the Judean hills and mountains, Yoshua 
Yoshua goes from Gilgal, that's where they are, takes the road, goes towards Giv'on, he's heading westward. And then we have Pasuk. God says, don't be afraid. You have nothing to worry about. It is going to be okay. Don't fear. Two questions. First of all, why is it you to respond so quickly? So definitively. He's going to come to the salvation, to the rescue of the Givonim. Why? Second question is, why does he need He's in a good place. You beat Yericho. Okay, a little bit of a setback by I, but they come back and they win. And now they have the next city. Givon is at peace. They're ready to march onward. Why, is, why the, the pep talk by God? So the first question, why is he respond so quickly? I think it's two, twofold. First off, he realizes, Tzachel Hashem, if he leaves them to be slaughtered, after all, they are allies. I think the second answer is very similar to what we saw by Rav Yigal Yoshua realizes he has a gift. He has the opportunity to attack five cities in one shot. He'd be a fool to waste that opportunity. And so he comes. So why the Chizuk? An amazing, amazing answer by the Chomat Anach. He says, You, Yoshua, might be worried. You might be sitting there and saying, you know what? God is angry. This is Magiali. He's not going to stand up for me because I didn't ask him before I made peace with the Givonim. That would be a reason why I will not be successful in battle. The response, therefore, is Don't worry. I've given them to you. You're going to win. Okay? So what happens next? Pasuk Tet. Pasuk Tet. All night long, they travel from Gilgal. Miraculous. It should not take one night to move the entire army the distance of from Gilgal to Givon. Yet it happens. Piton. And what happens? And they, the enemies are all confused. All of a sudden, it's morning. And they find the Jews there. And what happens? They're all confused and they're routed in Givon. And they, they, they chase them and defeat them and hit them all the way to Beit Choron. If you take a look at the map, we're going northwest. It's actually the highway by Modi'in today. And if you go down... They go down all the way to Makeda. And the, way, the, the battle ends there more or less. Makagdola. Now the question is, why do they flee the opposite direction? They came from Jerusalem. Why are they going the other way? I think there's two possible answers to that. One is tactical. One is practical. The tactical answer is that they, they don't want to lead the, Jew, the Jews back into their cities. It would be I... 3.0. It will be a, a redo of the second battle in Ai 
the city is left open and they allow the people in. That's one answer. But a more practical answer might be the Jews might have come from them from behind. And by doing that, they actually cut off the road to return to Yerushalayim. And as such, they have only one choice. Remember, this is the mountainous region. It's not a flat area where you can go in any way. You're going to, which is why, if you take a look at how they're traveling, they're going in this circuitous way. That is the only way to leave. They're going up on that road. Now, we've got a lot going on here. A lot going on here. And so they, they're, they're running away. And along the way, God makes it rain down hailstones all the way to Azekah. Now, if you remember the map, Azekah is even further south than Makeda, and they die. More died by the stones, the hailstones, than by the sword. The Jews got a divine set of rockets, of missiles, that fall out of the sky, Barat. The Gemara Brachot offers a fascinating answer. Where do these hailstones come from? What's the deal with them? Is it just a miraculous, a sudden hailstorm? I had one of those a few weeks ago, sitting in my, my office, working, and I hear the pitter-patter from outside. It doesn't sound like rain. And I look, and my entire windowsill is covered with a little bit of ice. Hailstones. How does it work? You could have hailstones in the middle of the summer. I remember years ago in, in New York, in the middle of the summer, one day, massive hailstorm. Freezing ice things in the middle of nowhere. Where do these hailstones come from? And they're big. They're not little pieces that, you know, they hit you and they, they, they hurt a little bit or they hit your car and they, they make pock marks in it. We're talking about, really, if you look at the picture, these are significant stones. Gemara Bracho says, I'll tell you where it came from. Paro says to Moshe Rabbeinu, I want, I'm, I've had enough. Barad is over. End it now. Moshe Rabbeinu davens. The time is that when you daven, and it's in the middle of a, an event. It's raining. It's hailing. There are the hailstones that, are, that have already left the, the, the sky and they're coming down. What happens with them? The Medrash tells us that they stopped midstream and they disappeared. They went back up. God, says the Gemara, held on to them and said, the day will come that I'm going to need these hailstones and I'm going to use them. And it was used at this moment. What is the purpose of the hailstones? If you take a look at the Malbim, the Malbim says something wild. And I think it's important to understand the Malbim because if you accept the Malbim, he's taking an approach to this whole battle that is absolutely divine. It's miraculous. Could not have happened without God. And yet, I believe that there's another way to look at it. The other way to look at it is that this whole event, it happens, and there are certainly opportunities to see the hand of God in there, but it is also certainly easy to look and say, Yoshua got lucky. The hailstones came down, and they wiped out some of the enemy. 
we we got the benefit of some other things, it's not a miracle. And I think that there is a, a third possibility. Divine, completely mundane, and this shituf, this combination, where the Jewish people are the movers and the shakers. They are doing battle. They're the ones by Yehumeim. They chase them. Even though it's by Yehumeim Hashem with me yourself. But from an outsider's perspective, they're the ones making it happen. Their battle force comes and the five kings run. But it's a, it's a combination. It's God working with the Jewish people. If Yericho was completely miraculous and I was God saying this is the battle plan, here it's the Jewish people saying we've got the battle plan. God saying, come, I got you back. I'm going to help you. I'm going to add this and this, and it will make your life easier. But listen to what the Malbim says. The Malbim says, According to Google Translate, El Gavish, crystal, crystal stones. It happens. I remember, remember speaking after that to, to a friend of mine, in who, who was working in one of the hospitals in New York after the hailstorm in New York a bunch of summers ago. And he told me that his entire parking lot in North Shore LIJ, all the cars, you're talking about people that fancy people with fancy cars, their cars, millions and millions of dollars of destruction because of this one hailstorm in this one parking lot. But that happens. Zet Davar TV. But there was a miraculous piece here. The Jews are running after them. And they don't, the stones do not hit the Jews that are chasing them. It only hit the places that the non-Jews are in. When the Jews were there, there were no stones. So you know what someone's going to say. Someone's going to say, yeah, the storm was moving. It was moving with them. It's still natural. But the Malbim doesn't accept that. He says that this is something that is out of the ordinary. Pasuk, you bet. The war is over. We know. They, all the way, they went all the way to Azekah. That's, that's the end of the line. What happens? Pasuk, you bet. Az Yedaber Yehoshua. Yoshua speaks Lashem. As Yedaber Yoshua Lashem, as Yashir Moshe. Moshe sang. It's a levy, maybe. Moshe sang, Yoshua speaks. But as Yedaber says Rashi, Amar Shira Tachar Hashemesh. He's singing praise to God. On the day that the Jews had defeated the Amorim. What does he say? Vayomer leinei Yisrael. He says to the eyes of the Jewish people, Shemesh begivon dom v'yareyach v'emek ayalom. It says that the sun is do and givon is dom, and the yareyach and the moon is v'emek ayalom. I have to tell you that it took me a lot more time to understand these words than anything else. We normally understand it as Shemesh Begivon Dome, Dome, the sun, Dome, the sun stopped. 
wherever the sun was in the sky at that moment, and that's a really big question we have to understand. Now, what's the purpose of the sun stopping? What time of day is it? Is the sun stopping early morning, overhead midday, the end of the day? And the war is won by, which we kind of touched upon a little bit. Who is the victor of the war? Is it God? Is it the Jewish people? Or is it both? I'm going to let you work on question number four on your own. But I want to try to understand what is the purpose of the sun stopping? And what time of day is it? But in order to do that, I think the first piece is what does it mean, Shemesh Begivon Dome? That the sun stopped or the sun domed in Givon? I think we could all understand the Areach Be'emek Ayalon much better. This, the moon is Be'emek Ayalon. The word dome only comes up one other time in Tanakh as a standalone word just like that in Tehillim. And there it means that this that it means silent. Dome. Aaron is silent. Shemesh on dome. The sun is silent. Now, if you understand the expression the sun is silent, it could be that the sun is silent in the sense it's not moving. So normally the idea is that the sun moves. So if the sun is silent, it's frozen, it's not moving. So one way of looking. There is an alternative. And the alternative would be that the sun dome is the sun stop, the sun is silent. The sun is silent at night or when there's an eclipse. When you have an eclipse, there is no sun. It's the only way to quiet the sun that's not nighttime. Unlike the moon, that you have quiet nights, and you have loud nights, if you will. Shemesh begivon dome, yarech beimekai alone. What does that mean? The Ral Bag says the, idea, the notion that the sun stopped is impossible. I wouldn't feel comfortable saying this, but knowing that it's the Ral Bag, I feel comfortable quoting the Ral Bag. The Ral Bag says it's not true. So the celestial beings don't stop. And he said, if it's true, then there's a problem with, with, with a, a Pasuk in the Torah. The Torah says that after Moshe, no one like Moshe ever came again. To stop the sun, that is such an unbelievable miracle that tops, that trumps Moshe's miracles. And so, therefore, he argues the sun didn't stop. What happened is the Jews went really quickly. They got a lot done in a day. Sometimes when you get a lot done in one day, you come to the end of the day and you say, wow felt like such a long day. It felt like I had more than 24 hours today. Why? I accomplished so much. Says the Ralbag, that's shot in the puzzle. This is Yoshua. He's giving praise to God. This is not words. This is song. It's poetry. In poetry, if I say that the sun stopped, I could also just be saying, I got so much done today. It was as though the sun stopped moving and it afforded me more time. That is the Ralbag. I want to share with you a couple different possibilities. A couple different possibilities. And soon as David says, The sun and the moon stopped. That's what it means. Now there is an argument that is made that what it means is they stopped in their place. It is that there was an eclipse. The moon stopped in a place that blocked the sun, Shemesh Begivon Dome. 
sun went quiet. What would be the benefit of quieting the sun? Perhaps it, it absolutely shook, absolutely shook the locals, and they didn't know what to do, and they froze. There is an amazing story that's told that in 1948, when the Jews were attacking the city of Tzfat, they had no weapons. What are you going to do? Attack with almost no weapons. But they had this amazing weapon, weapon, only amazing in terms of its noise, the Davidka. They had a Davidka, it's a bomb. They blew it up. It made an unbelievable amount of noise. And the Arabs in Tzfat were terrified. But then another thing happened. It rained. It doesn't rain in Tzfat generally. After, uh, after Hey Iyar. So what happened? The Arabs were afraid. Oh my God, the Jews must have this atomic bomb. This is, we don't even know what this is. They all fled from the, from the city of Tzfat. Maybe that's Pshat. There was an eclipse and it froze the people. People were terrified and it allows the Jews and the stones to go to work wiping out the people. That's one possibility. Two other possibilities. The Barbanel suggests that it's actually the end of the day. The sun is setting. And Yoshua's fear is that if it's nighttime, we won't be able to catch every one of the locals. They're going to escape to their cities and it will not be a complete defeat. They need more time. So Yoshua, Davin, Shevich, we give on Dawi, Reach, Beim, God, give me more time so that we can see and we can defeat our enemy. Okay, or it's too dark. Chomat Tanach takes it takes it one step further. It says Yesh Misha Pireish Hayat Zeh Be'erev Shabbat. It was Erev Shabbos. It was Friday afternoon. Benit Yarei Yoshua Hashem Yasam Yasu Melchama B'Shabbat. He was afraid that the the battle would continue on Shabbat. Yamshich Mizesh Abizat Yakadesh Kodesh Kiricho. He was afraid this is going to be a repeat of Yericho. Yericho was what was defeated on Shabbos going to the Medrash. And that's why, another reason why everything, the spoils belong to God. He said, what if this happens again? He was afraid that someone, there would be another Achan, and God would get angry. Say, Davin's God, I need a few more hours of daytime so we could defeat the enemies for Shabbos time. So according to both of the Abarbanel and the Chomat Anach, we are talking about this is the end of a long day. And they're afraid that what's going to happen, the day will end, the battle won't be, won't be completed. I want to share with you another answer. I heard this from one of our listeners, Yonina, a friend, and she suggested the following. In the name of her awesome tour guide, Gedalia Goldstein. So she said, the Jewish people, she shared this with me. I had to check again this week. I was really not sure I understood it. But so says tour guide Gedali It's the morning. And there are Mepharshim that support this. And even the text itself would support it. Because what happens? It's all night long. And then they arrive. They come in the morning and they start attacking. Now, they are coming from the east. And they're going west. As they're going westward, 
the sun rises the Mizrach. Zoreach, it rises in the east. The Jewish people have an unbelievable weapon behind them. It's just as good, maybe even better than the hailstones. They have the sun right behind them. What is the sun doing behind them? It's providing this powerful glare. Now I'm running and I'm turning backwards to look at the people that are throwing spears and and, and coming with their swords after me. And I can't see anything because the sunrise is, is, on ta- is behind me. So I'm forced to squint. Picture driving on the highway into the sun when it's a massive, strong ball of the sun. You're squinting. You can barely see the cars in front of you. You can't even see a car in front of you. You're hoping for the best. You don't want to be running away with people chasing you squinting, not being able to see. Are they gaining ground on me or not? Says Gedalia Goldstein, that's the concern. If the sun continues, you know what's going to happen? It will be overhead. And actually, eventually, it will be not only overhead, but it'll be, in, it'll be facing the Jewish people. The Jewish people will be attacking, but they won't be able to see their enemies because the sun is setting. Shemesh Begivondom, Yerech Beimekayalom, they need more warning. Okay? All possibilities. I want to share with you one more possibility. Let's take a look at Pasuk Yud Gimel and go a little further and then we'll suggest one more. The sun was whatever, quiet, stop, and the, and the, the moon stayed in its place. Until the enemies were destroyed, and this is what's written in Sefer Ayashar. And the sun stood in the middle of the sky. That would be a reason to suggest that afternoon would be the correct retiming of this pasuk. But the day didn't finish like it normally did. What in the world are is Sefer Yasha? Ibn Ezra quoted, I, I, I heard quoted from Rabbi Alex Israel, believe Rabbi Michael Hatton, says that there are books that were lost over time from Tanakh. Sefer Yasha was one of them. We had it. They weren't one of the 24 books of Tanakh, but they were contemporary books to Tanakh. We have it. It's Sefer, Sefer Hazifronos Leparasimadai. We have that coming up in the Megillah. We have Sefer Divrei Hayamim L'Malchei Yisrael. Sefer Divrei Hayamim L'Malchei Yehuda. Those are not Divrei Hayamim that we have at the end of our Tanakh. They're separate books. We don't have them. Sefer Ayasher could be just that. Says Rashi, though, no. This is actually in the Torah itself. He says that your uh, one of your children, he says to Yosef, will be everybody will talk about him. This was a day that Ephraim got their due, Yosef's family got their due. When all of this happened, everybody spoke about, wow, look what Yeshua did. 
It was never a day like this again. Sounds like the Jews go back to Gilgal. We'll discuss that in just a moment. But question is, why do we need all this? What's going on here? We answered what the sun is doing. Maybe even answered what time of day it is. Why do we need this? Couldn't the Jews have just beat them normally? So I want to play a game with you right now. Those of you that are afraid, we're going to take a deep dive into idolatry for just a moment. What was God, What was idolatry in ancient Canaan? And so we polled 100 people, and the top four answers are on the board. What are the four most popular gods in ancient Israel? Give you a couple seconds to think about it. Those of you that are familiar probably with Malachim will know that the number one god is the god of Baal. Baal, the Jews worship Baal. It's introduced into the Jewish people by none other than Ahab's wicked wife, Izevel. Baal is the storm god. Makes perfect sense. Why would you worship the storm god? Because the Jewish nation, the land of Israel, is a nation that relies on rain. Never got excited about rain in New York. Yet, it rains here. I tell my kids, Gishme Bracha. Can't be upset that it rained for a whole week and we couldn't go outside. This is what's going to get us through the, the, the summer. Bow. God number one. Number two is Ashtarot, which is the goddess of fertility. What are the third and fourth gods? So we have the god of the moon. Interestingly, I never thought about this, but the city of Yericho comes from Yareya. And we have the sun god. I live in Beit Shemesh. A lot of Jews live in Beit Shemesh. Originally, it was a city that worshipped the sun. Do you know why that makes sense? Because the sun is ever-present. It's 80 degrees yesterday. It's going to be 89 degrees on Sunday. It's March time. And yet the sun is always here. When it gets cold, because the sun disappears for a little bit in the winter and it goes down to the 40s and 50s. The rest of the time is so warm. The sun is always there. What's God trying to do? Shemesh be given dome, the areach alone, and the hailstone. God is taking over for Baal and Ashtarot, which represent the rain and fertility. God is taking over for the moon. God is taking over for the sun. They're all present. And God shows, I control every single one of them. Perhaps the miracle of Shemesh B'Gibon Dom Yerech Bein Mekayalom and the hailstones are not because Yoshua needs them. He can win the war on his own. After Vayehu Meim Hashem, the war is over. They've won. But there's more to it. What God wants them to know is, God is saying, I am the ultimate deity. And there's no one else like me. So God shows his mastery over the gods. In case the story sounds familiar, it might, because it sounds a lot like the Abraham story. Five kings versus four kings. Okay, Yoshua's just five kings. The kings, we'll see in just a moment, are trapped. Malki Tzedek, Adoni Tzedek. Adoni Tzedek is the king of Yushalayim. Malki Tzedek is the city of Yushalayim. There is a difference, though. Avram is accepted by all after the war. Yeshua is opposed by all. So let's try to understand what is going on here. So Pasuk 
Ted Zion. The Abarbanel points out that this is actually, even though they, it says they went back to Gilgal, it's not true. It finished the war. Now it's going back after the thing is big adult. It's going to give us the Pratim. They hide in a cave in Makeda. He says, oh, wow, kings are trapped in a cave. He says, close it with rocks. Close up the, the cave with stones so that I could, and will and, and leave men there to, to protect it. But don't stop. Forget the kings. They can't do anything anymore. Don't wait any more time. Go catch all the other ones. You know what happens? They actually destroy most of the Jewish people, uh, most of the enemies of the Jewish people, and a few flee back to the city, which I believe is proof that the purpose of Shemesh Begivon Dome was not really to ensure that nobody escaped because people escaped. And God could have let them win at night also. But it's to shatter the myth of the Avodah Zarah and its value. They say there's no storm God. There's no fertility God. There's no sun God. There's no moon God. There's only God. They come back to Makeda, which is where we have the cave. And nobody wetted their tongue against the Jewish people. Nobody said anything against the Jewish people. This should sound very familiar because it is the same language we have by the night of Korban Pesach. Take them out of the cave. They don't have names again. Only at the beginning. Nobody cares. Takes out the five kings. What is going on here? Says Rav Yigal something unbelievable. It says, it sounds so much like the story of Abraham. So why do I need to have this exact story again? He says that the message of the story is that both Abraham and Yoshua were fighting on behalf of others. You know, Avram was fighting to save this, the, the, the five kings. He was fighting to save Lot. He wasn't doing this for himself. He doesn't take anything. Not even He doesn't take a shoelace. Nothing. Not even a little bit. And Yoshua, he was fighting on behalf of the people of Gibbon, not his own. When we fight on behalf of others, it says, it shows our true colors. Shows them our true colors. So we're almost done. He calls all of his generals, his officers. He says, Put your feet on the necks of the king. They put their feet on the necks. Why is he publicly humiliating the kings? Why would he do this? Says the Malbim, we have this. We see this in, in, in Navi often. We, we do a sign to make it, it, it out there of what we hope will happen. Just as we have our feet on the necks, the throats of these kings, so too to all the other kings. That, says the Malvin, is the answer. Says God, God, he says this is a tefillah. The same thing should happen 
to all of the other enemies of the king, of the Jewish people. And again, they string them up like they did to the Melech of Yericho and the Melech I until Ha'aren. At nightfall, what does Yeshua do? They throw the bodies, the corpses, into the into the cave, seal it up again with stones, and leave it that way at Etzimayomazeh. What's going on here? Two questions. Why publicly do this to the kings? And why, secondly, include the Ketzinim? Remer offers a beautiful explanation. He says, this is the difference between Moshe and Yeshua. Remember we said Yoshua is the Araya. He's the moon. The moon needs the stars. What do the stars do? Stars help the moon light up the sky. He calls in the Ketzinim. He could do it himself, but he wants him to feel a part of the process. That is an answer to why they're included. But why publicly do you humiliate the kings? I want to share with you an amazing answer that Rabbi Alex Israel offers. Now, this is a more PG version of Saddam Hussein. This is Saddam Hussein after he was holed up in hiding. He was captured. They take pictures of him. Looks like he's on a nice, comfortable chair or couch in a nice, furnished apartment. Couldn't exactly see what was behind it, but maybe some cleaning products, some bottled water. This is not exactly the worst possible existence. But there is a story which the New York Post yeah, the New York Post happily, happily published pictures. After Saddam Hussein was uh, was captured, they hanged him publicly, and they hang him in his underwear. Why do they do that? In fact, the Geneva Convention says that that is actually um, forbidden. Throughout their internment, POWs must be treated humanely and with respect for their person and their honor. You can't do this. They're supposed to have clothing, food, hygiene, medical care. You want to hang them? Fine, but hang them in regular prison clothing. Why do they do this? But Alex Israel says, the reason you do this is it is intended to send a message to the people of Iraq. The butcher of Iraq is God. The regime is dead. It's never coming back. It sends a message to those people that suffered. He too is humiliated. And now... You'll never have to suffer again at his hands. But it's also a message to those people that are allied. It says to them, it's over. It's never coming back. If you think that there will be a time where your regime will be there, never, ever, ever again. Success of the battle or not with Iraq is irrelevant. But the message is the same. Why does he do this? Why does he publicly do this to the kings? He humiliates them foot on the throat. It doesn't kill them. Why does he do that? Because it's sending a message to everyone that the game is over. This will never be again. The five kings have fallen. The Jewish people have conquered the southern part of Eretz Yisrael. Next week, we will continue and finish up Perek Yod and do Perek Yod Have a wonderful week and enjoy walking with the prophet.